Greetings and welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this show explores the topics of security, technology, society, and human meaning. Every Monday, there's a news and analysis episode that curates tens of hours of reading into a concise 15-minute summary, as well as regular episodes featuring essays, interviews, and book reviews on these same topics. The goal is to provide a weekly, concise, and curated update on the most interesting things happening in the world, and to explore ideas that give you something to think about and prepare you for what's coming next. In this standalone episode, I'm talking to my great friend, Andrew Ringline. So Andrew and I have known each other since junior high, and he is one of the absolute smartest people I know. But somehow he's managed to keep a low profile until now, and I think this conversation will be the first part of changing that. So Andrew is working in the crypto space, and we go on regular walks around a local lake, and we talk about work and tech and life and whatever. And we just had one of these walks last week where I asked him a simple question. What does he see as the intersection of gaming and crypto? Andrew is a lifelong gamer, and he is active in the crypto space as well. So the resulting hour-long conversation was something I just knew I had to record. And that is what this conversation is. So with that, here's Andrew Ringline on crypto, gaming, and business. So Andrew, good to see you. We had this amazing conversation walking around the lake. The whole time I was walking, my phone was in my pocket, and I was worried that if I tried to record it, it would just sound like crap. But the whole time we were talking, I was like, damn, I really wish I was recording this because I feel like we were going to forget everything. And then we basically said, okay, we just need to do this again on a podcast. So we're going to do our best to reproduce that, and it'll probably be a little kludgy, but we'll make an attempt at it. So thanks thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'll give a proper intro to you before this, so we'll just jump right into the conversation. And um, I think the question that I asked was basically, how did you see crypto interacting with gaming? But I understand yeah. you have a leading question as well. I guess we could do both. Let's do yours first. Well, mine is very similar to yours. Uh, you, you had said something like, how do you see this? But, but you'd also basically said, why? Right? Like, why? Mm. Like, why, why does it matter? Uh, and and my, I'll just dive into my leading question, which is, uh, three years ago, uh, I worked at a company and we launched a reward currency uh, inside an app. And uh, a number of salespeople hit me up and said, hey, listen, turn your reward currency into blockchain, into cryptocurrency. And I came to you and I talked to you about it. And I said, is there anything here I'm missing? Is there any reason this should be decentralized? And I got on the phone with three different sales reps and had them describe to me what they would do. They would, they would give us money. They would pay for the engineers. And I kept asking the question of why? Like, why should we change our reward currency to crypto? And I did not get an answer. That was anything other than it'll stick the word blockchain next to your company and you'll be cooler, mm. right? There was nothing that someone gave me. And I talked to three sales reps who were trying to convince me to use their blockchain. And I said, why? And I got no answer. And I kind of feel like the world is asking why. And, and at the lake, I think you also kind of said to me, you said, why? Like, why, why does it matter? Yeah. And I didn't have an answer three years ago. No one else had an answer three years ago. And I think now, now the answers are starting to emerge. The, the whys are starting to emerge. Mm. Okay. And so w- what is the answer? <laughs> well, so the answer is, is a longer one because there's actually a bunch of whys. Uh, and I'd say that the, the first one is kind of the, the simplest to talk about, which is the, the change to the financial model uh, in, crypto, in crypto gaming. Uh, if we look back at gaming and we talk about uh, the evolution from the very early days of pay-to-play into free-to-play, 
that was a really big revolution that people were very resistant to. And people said, why? And people said, that's terrible, right? Uh, but then it got proven that it's actually a better model. And one of the reasons that free-to-play is a better model than, than pay-to-play is you're only paying for what you want, right? As a consumer, I can go and I can play 20 games, not pay anything, find one game I like, and now I can spend all my money on that one game. That makes lets the cream rise to the top. It means that the game that is successful can make a lot more money than the games that are not successful. Uh, so, so, so is that basically is, there's more experiments because there are more people playing more games? Well, it does allow for more experience because it also allows free-to-play makes it easier to try to go market something, right? It changes the marketing and it changes the monetization because now I can go get a user to try something a lot more easily. Convincing someone to spend $30 is hard. Convincing someone to click on a button is easy. So it's very easy to innovate and exper experiment and try to find something that, that can be good. And then all the money is being spent on the ones that are good. And so all of gaming, I mean, not quite all of it, but the vast majority of money in gaming has moved to free-to-play. Can you go back, you know, 10 years, and it's a very toxic idea. People didn't like it. People are like, oh, this is just a cash grab, right? Uh, but now you look at, you know, the, the largest games there are. You look at, like, Fortnite. You look at League of Legends, and they're free-to-play. Uh, Interesting, because everyone's saying that about crypto, that it's a giant cash grab. Right, it's, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. And so the evolution from pay-to-play to free-to-play was an evolution that, that aligned the financial incentives better. And play-to-earn and crypto gaming actually does that again. And it does that probably a little bit more than free-to-play did. Uh, and it's catching on much, much faster than mm. free-to-play did uh, because the difference is greater, right? Free-to-play, let's just say free-to-play is twice as good of a model. Well, play-to-earn is probably like four times as good of a model. So the, the speed of adoption is even faster. Okay, so play to earn, you think, is the next iteration past um, free to play? Yeah, from a from a financial model standpoint. Yeah. Okay, so financial model. The, so financial model is one axis, and then, and then you have other things like UGC. How how does that play into this? Yeah. So so I think there's actually like five different things that uh, for crypto gaming are kind of multiplying its speed of adoption and its importance. And, and if we just go backwards for one second, just talk about like what's happened recently, just so people can. Uh, understand uh, implications. Uh, what's happened recently is back in July, a single game uh, went and launched their play-to-earn component, and this game is called Axie Infinity. And this game company is worth uh, about $14 billion uh, today. Uh, $14 billion is the fully diluted market cap, so it's not really worth that, but that's sort of what it's worth. Uh, Blizzard, which uh, is... Uh, the preeminent, preeminent IP, most significant, third, third largest gaming company in the world, and the single largest acquisition ever in U.S. history, was just acquired because of blockchain. Why did that happen? It happened because of Axie Infinity came out of nowhere and is suddenly on everyone's radar. And after Axie Infinity sort of showed a superior financial model, five other games came along and did the exact same thing. Uh, and so when a, when a Yahoo like me can make a phone call and suddenly talk to a CEO who's got a billion-dollar company, because he did something three months earlier, it, it's bizarre. It, mm. It's accelerated the speed of these game companies' growth. So every game company is now thinking, okay, what do I do that is this new model? It's much, much faster than the free-to-play adoption. It's what drove the Microsoft Blizzard acquisition. It's also what drove the Facebook renaming itself. So the financial implications of this in the gaming world are being seen by these other companies, and they're all trying to rapidly move as fast as they can to adopt it. And that's just the... The sort of the proof behind that that first change. So that first change, are we talking strictly about quickly being able to raise money for a new idea? Uh, that that is one of the implications I think inside of that that model change because 
basically a new game has capacity to earn more money more quickly. It's the same thing as like a free-to-play acceleration, right? A free-to-play game can adopt more users more quickly because they're not uh, trying to get them to pay money right up front. So it's that same kind of multiplier. Well, uh, one, one is getting more users quickly, but um, I thought we were talking about like launching like an NFT, for example, to gain a bunch of capital to be able to hire developers. It does do that too, yes. So it changes the model so there's more, more cash up front earlier on. Uh, and it also changes that same model when you look at uh, Axie Infinity. This is a terrible game. It's like a knockoff, very poor, bad experience of Pokemon. It's nothing near as good as, let's say, Pokemon Go was. Pokemon Go was a craze out of a kind of a great new game system, right, that just swept the world. This is the, the lamest and dumbest game that has come out in any major way anytime recently. But if someone were to ask me, hey, what's Axie Infinity's prospects? I would say it's great because they just put all the money in the world in the bank and everybody knows what their IP is. They had done the thing you're describing, which is they basically did a fundraise on a kind of bad game. Now they can iterate on that game and they can invest a lot of capital in making better versions of the game. And in one year, they're going to have games that are better than Pokemon Go because they have all this money. So okay, so get- w- what is the engine that's driving it? How is it, how is it surviving for six months or a year? Like, what's keeping it afloat? Yeah, so I think that goes into some of the other uh, other elements uh, that are happening. So should we move forward to like so the first one is like the financial model has changed. Sure, sure. What's the I second one? Bunch. So so I think the second one is uh, the change of people who are involved in something and turning them into owners of that thing. Uh, and I, I have a funny story about our uh, our background. I use an iPhone. Uh, we're an iPhone family, and I have five kids and a wife, and every one of us has some kind of Apple device. And the reason we have Apple devices is because of you. Because many years ago, you dragged me into, mm-hmm. a, uh, into an Apple store and you bought me an iPhone. Mm. Because you're a Maven who influences people, right? You, you basically have like a, uh, an attachment to Apple and you shared and dragged me along with that mm. attachment to spread to other people. Uh, in marketing, this is called also being a Maven. It's also being an influencer, right? And you're that, whether you're on a podcast or in person, you do the same thing with people uh, all around. Mm-hmm. Well, when you, when you take something like a game and you actually give people an ownership stake in it by giving them a thing that they can then transfer and own and can change in value, you turn people far more into being Mavens for your product, being influencers for your product, being stakeholders, having a reason to get other people to do it. So one of the shocking things is this game that is terrible, Axie Infinity, actually has longer play times, higher growth than other conventional games. Because they have turned every single person who owns any piece of it who owns an NFT, who's playing this game, into an advocate for it. And so they are they're weaponizing their own owners and their own community members to go and recruit more people because they all share the benefit together. In, in the same emotional way that you advocate for, for Apple when you bought me an iPhone. You didn't have a stake in that, right? Uh, so I, but, I don't know much about this game. But can I offer, offer like a cynical uh, approach to this? Is sure. it just that it is free or play to earn? Therefore, it's an income generation system therefore a lot of people are making money off of it so they're excited about it for that reason Here, here's the really fascinating thing yes yes and no so there's another restriction that isn't just play to earn so world of warcraft uh a game dear to my heart i've played for you know a very long time uh has a much better earning engine than axie infinity if you were to go and basically buy a 500 asset in world of warcraft and know how to use that asset correctly you can make between one to two hundred dollars a day on that asset uh, and that's the exchange, the way people think about, I own an asset, I own a thing, you know, I own property, what money is that generating for me? Mm. So the money being generated from a job in World of Warcraft is like 25% per day 
of the value of that asset. If you go and buy uh, a team for Axiom Infinity, it costs $1,200 and it generates about $35 a day. So the people who are working in this, so people in the US are buying the assets and then they're farming out the jobs to other countries like in East Asia. Uh, but the income per job is much, much worse than World of Warcraft. Well, what's the difference then between Axie Infinity and World of Warcraft? Why is Axie Infinity engaging people more and being more viral? And uh, the reason is it's allowed. And apparently when you make something a black market item like in World of Warcraft and you, there's a risk hanging over your head, people don't build businesses and do jobs out of that. So World of Warcraft, the simple idea that Blizzard never approved this, these types of transactions, they're still happening on a black market. But that disapproval, that complexity, made it so people, not as many people are doing it as, as a job, even though it pays better. Whereas once you approve it and you say, you know what, this is the difference between like, are you a taxi driver, but you're looking over your shoulder constantly to see if cops are going to stop you and take away your taxi. Mm. But you can earn 100 times more if you're a black market taxi driver. Uh, or are you a legitimate taxi driver or a legitimate Uber and you're allowed to actually operate? And so when they made it, you're allowed to operate in this fashion, that that was the change. Even though the the mechanisms to make money were already there, one is legal and one is essentially illegal. Didn't you have another example of this with um, a Fortnite mod or a um, Minecraft mod? Yeah, so uh, if we go back to the origin of uh, Battle Royales and we go back to the origin of uh, MOBAs, both of these things were created by communities. We'll, we'll get to that probably later in this example as well. Uh, but Minecraft uh, as a game uh, did not allow people to monetize uh, external from Minecraft itself for a long time until Microsoft bought them. And uh, one of the things that happened was someone created, innovated a new type of game that was revolutionary. And I remember watching some of the very first Hunger Game mod battles they were. They were battle royales. They were inspired from the movie Hunger Games. Mm. You weren't allowed to monetize them, right? So somebody made this mod and they gave it away for free. Now, when you're, when you're making something, you're giving it away for free and you can't monetize it, you, uh, you're not putting incentives in the right place, right? It's, it's, it's like, a, would startup companies be startup companies if they couldn't make any money? Would pharmaceutical companies make drugs? if they couldn't, uh, you know, benefit on them afterwards. Mm -hmm. Somebody went and with no perceived long-term benefit went and created Hunger Games mod in Minecraft, made no money on it, and then a bunch of people realized, wait, this is way better, and then lots of different games started coming out following that same formula, and that led us up to Fortnite, which is one of the juggernauts now, is literally a knockoff of this mod. Now, who made the Hunger Games mod? I have no idea. Did they make any money? No. So that did not drive innovation in the way it should have, uh, if, if the incentives had been in a, in a better place. Mm, interesting. Okay, so that's two. What's number three? So number three uh, is the difference in the way uh, these companies are interacting with their communities. So uh, when, you, uh, when you look at a conventional game publisher like EA or, uh, or Epic Games, uh, so you know I used to talk a lot to Epic Games back before they became big with Fortnite, and they attempted to be very focused on their community and influencers. Once they got big, they kind of stopped. They, they were trying to, but they stopped. You go talk to EA and you say, hey, I've got something that relates to your community. Hey, let's do something great with your community. They're going to refer you to intern number seven. Uh, a conventional game company right now is built on the idea that I'm going to go market. I'm going to get users. I'm going to try to maximize the value from those users. And if I can do anything to maximize my value, I'm going to do that thing. How do I make the most money for my people and how do I get more people? Mm -hmm. And that's where their, their brains are at. Uh, when you go to the, all the, the crypto gaming companies that exist right now, they're very different. The CMO for Gala Games lives inside of their Discord and talks to people all day long. Uh, so I went and met him at Decentral uh, 
which was a DeFi com- convention in Florida uh, a few months ago. And uh, I said to him, hey, what's the most important thing in your company? And his answer wasn't how good my game is. His answer wasn't how much money we make per user. His answer wasn't our user acquisition. His answer was our community. Most important thing to us is our community. This is a guy who the CMO of this now 10 plus billion dollar company, he lives all day long in Discord. It's like his desk is sitting in front of a glass window that has a test, uh, a testing group going on inside of it, which is constantly testing everything they're doing. And he is watching that nonstop. Mm. He is completely plugged into the community as is everybody in the company. And if I say to him, hey, listen, I've got a technique that will add 30% more to your monetization, but you know, your community may not like it. He would laugh in my face and say like, are you kidding me? Mm. We don't do things my community doesn't like. All these crypto companies, because there is a, an absence of ability to market conventionally right now for crypto games, they have been built from this fundamental idea of we are games for communities. Our users are our Mavins. Therefore, they must be happy. This is like if Apple said, hey, Dan, uh, do you want me to charge you, you know, X amount more for an Apple product, right? And all they care about is how much money they get from you. Or do you want Apple to call you and say, hey, hey, Dan, what was going to make your experience with the iPhone better, mm. right? Th- these are companies that are built fundamentally from the idea of how do we keep our communities engaged? How do we listen to our communities? How do we be responsive? And because they're built that way, uh, the, the occurrences I mentioned earlier, League of Legends being a MOBA and Battle Royales like Fortnite being a, uh, being a Battle Royale, those things were invented by communities and ignored by game developers for years. Mm. It's very slow adoption. The crypto gaming world does not ignore its community. They are the most hyper-responsive to community companies there are. It is fundamental in their DNA. And I do believe that as they're getting bigger and bigger, they're not going to lose that in their DNA. And I do believe that that is a massive competitive advantage because they're actually listening to the consumer in a deep way that, that other people are not. So is this because in this world, essentially those folks are not just users. They're also marketers and they're also creators. That's right. Yeah, which, which will lead us into our fourth point of the creator part as well. But, but that's exactly right, because your, your consumers are everything, right? I, I think one of the ways that TikTok has managed to uh, be even more viral than YouTube uh, is not only is it giving you access to UGC, but it's actually taking everybody who watches TikTok and makes it really, really easy to pull you in as a creator yourself, mm. right? They're trying to involve the individual. And when my kids bring TikTok home and they go, oh, look at this new TikTok, what do they do? They, they go film themselves doing the same thing. They've now flipped it around and now they're bringing all their friends and they're recruiting and they're becoming those advocates for that software that has helped drive TikTok. Well, that's true of all of these crypto games in an even deeper fashion, because not only are you potentially part of creation, but you're also part of ownership. And that transformation in, in the way that people are involved has made these companies recognize, okay, you know, community is the most important thing. And now when Blizzard and Facebook come along and try to play it in this, uh, in this arena, they haven't grown up from that DNA. Right. They, they have people who are over here thinking about how do I maximize my user experience? How do I get the most money from people? How do I make this so I can have the best marketing campaigns? Mm. Their, their old world mindset is not going to change that easily to thinking instead, hey, I need to be sitting in a room with a thousand people who are who are my advocates and my users right now and all the time. That yeah. is a fundamental different DNA that I do not see in these major companies that I do see in all of the crypto companies. And I think it's going to give them a long term competitive advantage. It's temporary because actually the rest of the world might change that model too eventually. Uh, so this is not an implicit, like inherent persistent advantage, but it's certainly an advantage that's going to carry forward for a few years. Interesting. And so number four is creators. 
Yeah, so creators, right? We've seen this with YouTube. We've seen this with TikTok that the ability to uh, have UGC means that you're not limited by like a company's creativity. Like CBS is limited by their own creativity, right? Once you add UGC, you multiply the amount of content, you multiply the variety of that content, and people go find out better and more voluminous ways of, of, of showing and doing things. So YouTube is just a better model from the UGC standpoint than let's say, you know, like television, mm-hmm. right? as, as we can see, just like TikTok is. Uh, now, when it comes to game creation, right? Uh, Minecraft had a model that said for a long time, had a model that said, hey, you can come and build games out of Minecraft, but you can't monetize them. So the incentive to do it was very low. People still did it, right? People still created what turned into now is Fortnite, but they didn't, they didn't reap any benefits. Well, if you look at the sandbox, which is one of the games right now that exists, they're mostly a toolkit to help people make their own games. This, this can magnify the capacity for innovation because now all those people who used to go mod games for every other game are going to say, well, do I want to go make a mod, mod for a game where it's really hard for me to monetize? If I want to monetize off of Minecraft mod, it's actually not super easy. Uh, you can do it now. Now they've adjusted it so you can do it, but it's still not very easy. You want to go and do something out of the sandbox, you have much more tools available to you to make something that is unique and you immediately own the vast majority of the benefit, right? How much money does, does sandbox make when I go invent a game that suddenly gets traction? Sandbox gets like 5%. Almost all the money is going straight to the creators of those games. And this is the same kind of model that is happening for all across NFTs. The, the minting platforms and the infrastructure are taking very little, but they're facilitating it. And so they're enabling people to uh, actually create UGC and benefit from it. On YouTube, it, you know, you can benefit from your UGC, but it's actually pretty hard to make a living uh, because YouTube is still keeping the vast majority of the money, right? Most of the advertising dollars go to YouTube and a very small amount goes to video creators. In this case, that, that model is pushed much more extreme where 95% of all the money from anybody who's creating anything goes straight to the creators, mm. which creates a much bigger incentive for them to create things. Mm. Uh, and those things have a lot more flexibility than they've existed in the past. So we talked about Ready Player One in the past. It, it seems like, I mean, is Sandbox essentially like an SDK for how to create that system, how to create the yeah, universe? yeah, exactly right. In the in the Ready Player One, you don't see the mechanisms behind. In the the flaw with Ready Player One Metaverse is that it was all owned by one company, uh, and in the reality of how the Metaverse is emerging, what it would be it would be one company who created the tools, but each of the worlds in Ready Player One would actually be like owned by somebody else yeah right and that world would be like hey listen i own the world of doom right doom was i think one of the worlds mm-hmm. uh and i'm getting 95 percent of the value out of doom or doom was owned by a lot of people it's actually spread out in terms of ownership and there's there's a company that has that created the infrastructure but it's as decentralized as possible uh and i think that's the one piece that was missing from ready player one that if you could go back and say how will this actually be in the future it's actually going to be okay all those various worlds are owned by individuals and ironically that if the <clears throat> if that core infrastructure company you know went out of business or started being exploitative, those worlds would go somewhere else because the worlds are actually portable. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's funny. Just kind of reminds me of uh, some Soviet theater came over, I think, in the nineteen eighties to tour uh, the U.S. and was walking around, I think, New York City or something, and just saw all these um, markets outside on the street. And he looked to his uh, chaperone and said. Show me the planner who came up with this. This is amazing. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, all, all the different markets, they just put out their stuff whenever they want. Well, it's like, who decides what to put out? And they're like, no, it's all up to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, yep. very cool. 
Yeah, actually, that transitions really well into uh, kind of my fifth point, which is uh, persistence and decentralization, right? We're talking about the Ready Player One model, mm -hmm. right? Uh, well, in, in the Web3 world right now, there's a lot of people who are kind of anti-Big Brother. They're anti-Facebook. Uh, uh, for whatever, you know, that happens to have attracted those people. Uh, but there is actually a really superior element to crypto gaming uh, that can make it way more persistent. And, and, I, and I can give a couple examples of this. But first, we can start with the Ready Player One example. The Ready Player One example is, let's just say IOI from the movie takes over, uh, uh, <clears throat> takes over uh, the entire metaverse. And they say, hey, guys, we're going to put up ads everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And then all the users go, yeah, we don't want to be in that experience. Well, what happens to the person who's created the Doom world is the Doom world is its own body of code. It does maybe have an interpretation in this SDK, but it actually has its own group of users. It has its own community. And what they can do is they can go, you know what? We're going to unplug Doom from your your system because you're showing all these ads and that's shitty. And we're going to go plug it into this competitor of yours that just made this, this just kind of copied a bunch of your SDK elements. And NFTs are essentially infinitely transferable. And so now Doom is going to pick up its entire entire body and walk over here and plug into a different system. And that new infrastructure can offer a competitive advantage. Hey guys, no ads, ad free. And all of those worlds pick up and walk over and IOI is sitting there going, wait, hey guys, wait, but we're the ones who started all this. It doesn't matter. Right. This is a decentralized, persistent ownership that can be transferable. You can transfer the entirety of groups of assets. Uh, and there's an interesting example I have of this. Uh, there is an NFT project uh, uh, that one of my colleagues is involved in. I guess maybe I'll uh, avoid saying their names because this is super disparaging. But they basically, uh, the, the guys ran off with all the, the money that was generated from this NFT project. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to be building a game and they have this really engaged community. Well, they raised a bunch of money. They took the money. And then they left, right? Mm -hmm. Called a rug pull. It happens a lot in the NFT project side. Well, a different group came along and said, hey guys, you know what? We like this community. We, we like this NFT project. We know all the money got taken out, but whatever, we'll take over the project or we'll clone the project. Hey, everybody out there who already has this thing on the blockchain, you know what? We're going to issue a new thing for you uh, on, this other, uh, on this other chain. We're just going to give it to you. And we're just going to migrate all you guys over here. And hey, you know what? We're going to take care of you and we're going to do cool stuff that they yeah, were talking we, about doing. We created a new rug. We're going to put it under your feet that looked just like the old rug that got stolen. Right, exactly. And, and they can do that very easily because the technology allows for that kind of transfer, that Interesting. Kind of replication. And so you can actually, you know, uh, I could go make a game that is a racing game uh, right now. And then I could say, hey, by the way, guys, Gala Games has this game called Spider Tanks where you go and you fight. And I love the way they've visualized all of their tanks and it's a super fun game. But, you know, I really want to race things. And they won't answer the phone. So I went and made my own racing game. And everybody who owns a Spider Tank and Gala Games, I've just issued you one of mine. One of my race cars. And I've inspired it off of the art from whatever it was you already had. It's portable and it's persistent. Something can die. Bard's Tale can go out of business. Gala Games can close their Spider Tanks. IOI can put up ads. And those assets are portable and transferable. And it's, it, it allows for a type of persistence that means that <laughs> these things won't die. This is why people are obsessed with this, this real estate uh, <coughs> and obsessed with kind of the, the digital, like I want to own a piece of digital real estate because it'll be persistent. Even if the company issuing it goes out of business, that real estate is still there and someone else will use it in the same way. This is fascinating. Um, I think we talked about the Bology stuff, um, the Web3 stuff, the, the Sam Harris podcast where Bology was on there and talking about it. Um, this to me, what you're talking about is very Web3. And he's talking about in the, in the context of meat space and like, you know, um, the city of Austin gets a CEO instead of a, a mayor. 
right? Yep. And they say, okay, here's our tax law. Here's our traffic laws. Here's how you get fines. Here's how you get stoplight, you know, tickets or whatever. And like, here's our system. And you decide to be part of it or not. And you have a competing one over here in Houston. Yep. And the idea is that you, you vote with your feet or whatever, in this case, more digitally. But it seems like it's kind of the same thing you're saying. It's like, I love this doom world, except for I hate their rules over here. So someone just forks it. And now it's, a, it's almost the same, but slightly different because these, these different rules are different. Yeah, this idea of voting with your feet is so powerful. I think in all of crypto, right? But but gaming is is, is sort of like the the, the front end of the sphere here. Like gaming yeah. is the the place that has the most money and the most users and is the most engaged. So it'll be the part that'll try transformation. But yeah, it's the same thing as actually voting with your feet is the same thing that made uh, free to play better than uh, pay to play, right? Now you can vote more accurately with your feet because you're actually spending money where you want to, not just to try a thing, but for a thing that is actually proving more long term value. And then play to earn is allowing you to vote with your feet in a more long-term way of like, hey, first I can try things for free, typically, then I can spend money where I care about it. But then that money where I care about it uh, can both give back to me and can be persistent and can be transferable. And so there now becomes like all these different ways to vote with your feet that we didn't have before. And, and that magnifies your level of engagement and magnifies you getting the right thing out of it. So now the people who are involved are going to start getting the things they care about. Uh, and we've removed a big brother who's deciding what you care about and now we've turned it into, hey, what are the actual people saying they care about? Yeah, this is really fascinating. I mean, it does start to get pretty libertarian pretty quickly because <laughs> what, it what it's talking about is competition, right? You have a game. Yep. It's like it makes you mostly happy, but you really hate this one thing. You're just going to play another version of that game where that thing's fixed. Yep. Yeah, because it's because it is uh, the, the sort of the decentral. This is the fifth point, the decentralization and the persistence, right? It sort of enables this. the decentralization allows it to be like no one person decides it can lock you into an experience, right? Can lock your assets into to one place because they're because they're portable. Uh, and and the, the biggest companies right now in the gaming space, they, they know this. Uh, so if you go to the sandbox for Gala Games, these are two of the, let's say, six biggest companies out there right now. Uh, uh, that are already established in the in the crypto gaming world. Uh, they play super nice together. In fact, like they they really really want to be friends because they recognize that they have to actually have like sort of friends and collaboration and communities, and it's all about playing together. They can't stick out their territory. Like, does Facebook go and call Microsoft and say, "Hey guys, we want to figure out how we can play better and nicer together," right? We want all of our stuff to cross over and be shared. No, they're they're putting up fences and they're trying to stake out their territory right? Gala Games and Sandbox are in speed dial with each other. And when a new thing comes out, they go, oh, hey, hey, this new thing. Hey, can we do this thing together? So what because does Gala they, Games do relative to, you know, that's different than Sandbox? Is it exactly the same or is it a different take? It, they, it's actually a very different take. So Gala Games started out by, uh, they were a bunch of guys who basically had made uh, Farmville. And they're like, well, Farmville was a great free-to-play game. Play to earn is better. Let's go make Farmville in crypto gaming. And they went and made Farmville in crypto gaming. So they started out with a single sort of proven game model. It wasn't ideal. Uh, and they started out that game. And then they realized, okay, this is actually better. So let's do more games. And so they started hiring independent game publishers with their money. And they started building other games. And they basically their approach was to go and individually themselves or contract to build different games. And then have a bunch of games all under one banner. So they are much more of a, hey, we've, they have like, you know, six games in development. Like three you can play right now. So they went and built individual games. Sandbox built tools to build games and built this metaverse component. So they're playing together right now because Gal Games is like, we have all these games. 
but we have no metaverse and we don't have tools to make games. Sandbox is like, we have a metaverse and we have tools to make games. Let's play nice with Gala Games. Mm. And so they're, you know, sort of being friends, trying to connect these things back and forth as much as they can. Right? So, like Snoop Dogg. so if we oversimplify, uh, Sandbox has the ecosystem and Gala Games has the initial content? They have, they have some initial content they made themselves. They didn't do it via UGC. So they have a number of, they had a faster way to go to market. What they did was easier, but it wasn't really as transformative as what Sandbox was doing. Because they just went and made games in this new model without <coughs> trying to include the, the UGC element. So they skipped, you know, item four, which was UGC. Gotcha. It did make them go to market faster, but I think they're aware that they were missing that piece. They did just launch a new thing that is also UGC. So they obviously know they're going to start filling in those gaps. Uh, okay, so uh, what, what are the five again altogether? So the five are the change to the model, right? The evolution from, uh, from free-to-play into play-to-earn, uh, the financial model, the, 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 uh, the ability to sort of bring more money up front, and the change to the way users are, are paying and spending and earning. Okay. So just the change of the financial model is the first one. Uh, the, the second one is the way that you involve your owners and your players and your Mavins and your influencers into actual ownership and you turn them into advocates the way that you know, you're uh, an advocate for Apple, right? That happens automatically and much more powerfully. You give somebody something, you give them a stake in something, they are way more likely to think of it positively and recruit others. Mm. So the second one is that, that change in the model of ownership by bringing people in into the ownership. And third one? Uh, the third one is the fact that these companies right now have a temporary advantage of being fundamental community DNA companies where they listen to their communities, they're hyper-responsive to feedback, uh, because of one and two, right, makes number three make a lot of sense to them. I don't know how long it will take for the other companies like uh, Meta and Microsoft to change their entire DNA to be like that. It might never happen. So all of the existing companies that, are, that have grown up inside of crypto gaming have this fundamental DNA that is, let's listen to our community, which is a great practice for any company and quadruply a great practice for companies that are in crypto gaming. Okay, so finance, mavens, community, yep. and what's four and five? Fourth is UGC, right? And not only just the ability to create UGC, but the ability to incentivize that UGC and most of the money goes to the UGC creators. That's the, the creators of the world do make 95% of the money, right? This is uh, an improvement over the other models for UGC that are out there that, you know, you can make YouTube videos. Well, it's only one thing you can do with YouTube video. You can record yourself and you make, you know, 25% of what, what is coming in from advertising. For this, gaming is, a, is actually got more money behind it and more users behind it. 95% goes to the UGC creators and the amount of flexibility in that UGC is much, much greater. Okay. Uh, and then the fifth one is that decentralization and persistence, right? The fact that you can port something from here to here. I can leverage spider tanks. IOI can't kind of come and control the whole thing. So your actual ownership of it is, is more true because, because it is uh, decentralized. So would you uh, say that's the closest to Web3 is number five? With the ownership? Uh, I, yeah, I, I, th I think the persistence and decentralization ownership, that's one of the key elements of, you know, cryptocurrency as well. Uh, no one can take down my currency that, you know, that I own on, on Bitcoin. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's the most conventional, just sort of Web3 and blockchain. Interesting. Um, so, question for you about examples. I, I love your example. I know you're a huge Disney fan. Can you talk through, like, what Disney should have done or what they still can do with, like, issuing some sort of NFT with, like, special powers and, like, how it feeds into all five of your models? Yeah. So, well, with uh, with this, let's talk about Disney Plus. Uh, so now, th these five things, these five things are these are what exist in crypto gaming. 
And so when we jump over to Disney Plus, we're going to be talking about just entertainment, right? So all yeah. of them don't map exactly the same. But uh, but I do love this example. So Disney Plus, I'm a huge fan of Disney. Disney, uh, you know, I love Star Wars, I love Marvel movies. Uh, my kids all love all princess movies. Uh, I love Pixar movies. This is like four of the best types of content there is. So when they announced Disney Plus, I'm like, okay, I'm in. I am going to own Disney Plus for my entire life. There is no chance that I won't. I know that the second it gets announced that no matter, almost no matter how much they even charge, if they charge $40 a month, I would still own Disney Plus. If they charged 100 I would probably still own Disney Plus. It relates to all five of my kids, myself, my wife. It is of great importance. And I believed it was going to do very, very well. I'm like, Disney Plus, this, these are the kings of content. I remember you this- called it, yep. I said, this is going to do extremely well. There's no prediction that's going to be on the nose for how well it's going to do. And it's going to get better and better over time. And they will win. If there's going to be three winners, it's one of, they will be one of those winners. So I would be willing to invest in Disney Plus if it was a carve out from Disney. Now, I don't know how successful Disney would be. And hey, you know, coronavirus came by and kicked the ass of their parks. But I knew and I was sure Disney Plus was going to be successful. If Disney Plus had been modeled using this new uh, blockchain, and they had said, hey, guys, we're going to take a page from the books of these other hyper growth, successful financial models. And we're going to we're going to launch a piece of Disney Plus. We're going to give out an NFT. And this NFT is going to be a VIP pass. And there's a lot of privileges we can add to this because we're Disney. But let's just keep it simple. First things first, this VIP pass is going to give you a lifetime subscription to Disney Plus. And you're going to own it. And it's fully transferable. Mm. So. This thing is going to cost $1,000. Now, Disney Plus costs, is it $6 now or is it 10 I don't know. But uh, that's 100 months of Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to sell it for $1,000. We're going to do 100,000 of these VIP passes for Disney Plus. Well, what would have happened on day one? Uh, prior to day one, I would have gone and I would have bought 30, right? Because I would have immediately invested in that micro opportunity because I was such a big believer in it. I would have bought 30. And then I said, hey, Dan, uh, I'm going to sit on these for a long time because I think their value is going to go up. But if you want to watch Disney Plus, hey, I'm going to loan you one of mine. So here's one of my one of my NFT VIP badges. So you can also watch Disney Plus. I'm going to let all my friends use my my 30 things. I get to be cool for a while. Uh, but I also I, I believe that their value is going to go up significantly. So now there are there are a hundred thousand of these things, right? Uh, they will sell out on day one for sure. I bought 30 myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are like I get to own a VIP lifetime pass to always own Disney Plus. How many people are there who thought just like me? Quite a few which is why their numbers have blown up. They would have earned more money on day one than they have earned up to date so far. That's on day one. And it would, it would not have cannibalized their audience because actually a small percentage of their audience where they're charging $1,000. Now, what happens on day two? On day two, you say to me, hey, Andrew, did you notice that these things sold out instantly and their value is now doubled? I can't buy them anymore. On the open market, they now cost 2,000. Will you sell me one of yours for 1,500? And I go, okay, sure, you're my friend, no problem. I will sell you one of my Disney VIP passes for $1,500. I now made $500. 5% of that transaction goes back to Disney. Wait, Disney just covered their monthly subscription fees for all of my 30 NFTs that I have off of, off of 5%. Mm. So they still are making their persistent money. And now you also own something that is part of this future, right? Now, assuming they do this correctly and they don't go and just print way more of these, their value goes up and up. And three months later, there are more and more people saying, well, I want to have a lifetime pass for Disney+. Plus. And actually, if I'd been smart and I had bought one, the value of that pass would now be 4x. The more people who do that, the more the, the value is driven. And now I have, I have 28 sellable passes that are all worth $4,000. Uh, I go, you know what? I got to send one of my kids to college. So I'm going to go and liquidate 20 of these and I'm going to make uh, 80 grand. 
uh, I've now pocketed 50 grand. I've benefited personally off of the success of Disney Plus because I called it as an investor. I didn't have to be a qualified investor. There wasn't paperwork. Uh, there's not particularly like any complexity with doing that. So I've now made way more money than I invested uh, in this thing that was pretty reliable. And this would have like, it would have multiplied almost for sure. Uh, and I still have my lifetime uh, VIP for Disney Plus. Now, has Disney Plus lost anything? No, they're way ahead financially. They're getting residual income off of the secondary market sales, which is more than they would get off of subscriptions. I'm able to be, I'm able to signal that I'm a cool kid because I own a Disney VIP pass. I don't have to worry about paying that bill anymore because honestly, I was going to pay that bill for the rest of my life anyway, right? It's already going to happen. Yeah. I still want them to do this. Same thing with the MCU. Like, hey, you know, would I buy a, uh, a one-time ticket to go to the movie theater, like, you know, and I could just go every single week. They keep trying to do this with subscription fees, but like they could do it with an NFT and they could raise, theaters could do the same thing uh, with a smaller group of people and actually raise a lot of money in the short run, puts money in their pockets, and then they're still going to make their money off a residual. Uh, now, I don't know how long it'll be until a company like Disney can adapt to a new kind of model, but this model is being proven in the NFT world by people who aren't significant brands. And so my expectation is within two to five years, this will sweep through everything. Right. And it's going to be now a hand in hand. Okay. I'm launching Disney plus. Okay. What's the part that we're going to do that is persistent uh, and, and decentralized and gives ownership out because I want to create all those advocates. I want to have more money up front. Uh, you know, I want to be seen give, being given back to my community. Okay. That's half of it. And then what's the other half Yeah, and how many years will it be until it happens and happens everywhere. It's starting to happen, uh, but it'll be slow because it's hard for people like Disney to go, okay, here's our conventional projection. We're using Disney plus is using a model from television to like, you know, they're, they're trying to look at Netflix and say, okay, what did Netflix do? They're not thinking, okay, what's this innovative thing that just changed the way money is flowing and the way users are engaged. That's not where people are at yet. Not yet, but gaming will lead the way for everything. And once gaming does this, uh, which is already started to, it's already affected, you know, meta and uh, Microsoft and, and blizzard. And it, you, you give us one more year in gaming and then two more years in gaming. This is going to sweep through and, other gaming companies who don't adapt are just going to be decimated because it's going to be so much superior in terms of its adoption. So a couple of years from now, uh, you know, it's, it's Fortnite. We'll be doing this just like everybody else. All of gaming will do it. And then it'll become very easy for companies like, you know, Disney plus to be like, Oh wait, you know what? It works in gaming. Why wouldn't that work over here? Yeah. And I think you even had an example where somebody was trying to sell tickets to a club, um, uh, to a DJ club or whatever. And they like couldn't get any traction. They were talking to you about NFTs and you're like, why don't you just do this instead? Yeah. So, so I know these guys and they have an event marketing company in Prague and what they do is they go and they give out free tickets and they give out free tickets to different club events. And the reason they give out free tickets is when you give out 300 free tickets to a club and a giant party happening at this club, well, those 300 people will go and bring another 900 people. Right. And then they get a very small percentage of the door. So their job is to go out and give out 300 free tickets so that, so that 1,200 people show up to this club uh, and then they get a small percentage of the door and that's their model. And they're like, yeah, we're always looking for ways to improve our model. I said, okay, well, you have a mailing list. You go out and you give out tickets in person. You do these various things to get these tickets out. Well, why don't you just sell? Uh, and the, the entrance to these clubs costs uh, 8 to $12. So it costs, you know, let's say it costs $10 to get into one of these clubs or it costs, I actually think $7 more. It costs $7 to get into one of these clubs. Mm -hmm. uh, well, when you give out those 300 tickets, people are happy because they're getting something free. You're turning them into your marketing engine for everybody else. Well, why don't you take those people that you're regularly emailing, take people that you're regularly going out and trying to get them to sign up and go to these, these parties for free and actually offer those people, hey, instead of one free ticket, 
I'm going to give you a free ticket to every party happening in Prague, uh, in Prague at one of these giant clubs. And they actually have one every night because they, they're doing this, this event thing every night. So there are seven nights a week and people, you know, young people love to party, love to go to clubs. So you can go and say, hey, by the way, it normally costs you $7 to get into one of these uh, clubs during one of these events because they're really cool. Hey, if you buy this thing right here, which costs $50, this is lifetime free. Lifetime. Mm-hmm. How many how many of these parties do you go to per month? Is it how often? How long is it until you get your money back? Right. And they said these people's return rate is super high. That these people are going to one or two parties a week. Mm-hmm. So in one month they will get their money back. Right. So you can say to them, Hey guys, I could give you a free ticket, or I can sell you a lifetime supply of free tickets. Every one of these parties you can go into, and they could go out and they could sell a thousand or two thousand or four thousand of these NFTs. The the technology makes it very easy for them to do this. Uh, and that gives somebody a VIP pass to get into all these clubs. First of all, it's signaling. It's cooler. They get to show up and be like, flash their pass yeah, and special say, line, whatever. Yeah, special line, right? I, I have a thing that, oh yeah, it's free for me forever. Wait, how do I get one of those? You can't. They're sold out. You want to buy mine? It costs you $500 because you can't even buy it for $50 anymore. They go and they sell the first $500. Now, that much money to them, $500 at $50 to them is actually a giant sum of money compared to what they make as a percentage. So they could up, upgrade their club. They could do a whole bunch of stuff, right? They could do all kinds of things. They're, they're, the, they're the marketing agency drag people into clubs, but they could basically, they would not have to go and market as much anymore because more people would own these VIP passes and they would have way more money up front. Mm. Now, is there a problem in the long run with having a bunch of people who show up to these clubs and get in for free? No, it's their fundamental model anyway. They already want people to show up for free. This goes back to our point number two of turning like, owners and mavens and trying to get people to bring other people. They're using that same kind of concept. This just magnifies it and actually lowers their workload. They could do this NFT and then they could not even do the rest of what the stuff they're doing. They could literally just sell the NFT and then say, you know what? We're done. The only thing we do is we get a percentage of the door. You have the right to use our app at your door. They go to the club and say, hey, by the way, we want 30% of the gate in exchange for you using our app. So th- and now this they have is a crazy. scalable so thing. This is crazy. So if somebody were to respond and say, you're going to lose out because people are just going to be coming for free. That was the point in the first place was to get right, people exactly. in the door. <laughs> right, exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Right. They, they were already trying to turn people into recruit, recruitment for other people, right? When I go to a party, I bring, and I go to this club, I bring three friends, Yeah. right? It's the exact same model. Uh, and they just made it now so it's easier for them to implement, right? So they're gaining all kinds of utility. They're actually gaining simplicity for their business model. Like their actual business model now flows without as many humans. They gain a bunch of capital up front and they've now programmatized what they're doing. Now that simplicity means they can do this in Prague and they can pick up their exact methodology and they can go to Paris and they can do the exact same thing. And how much effort is it for them to go do this thing in Paris they've already done in Prague when it's all based on selling out these, uh, these NFTs that give you VIP entrances. They walk into the clubs, show what happened in Prague. Now it's really easy for them to replicate their business. So we've taken business and made it easier to replicate through this technology uh, innovation giving them way more money. Now it's actually like right away, they'll have plenty of money to say, you know what? We're done here. Prague is running by itself. We're earning residuals on this. We're earning a percentage of gate. Let me go to Paris. Okay. And, and, go ahead. So, so the fundamental concepts of revenue generation initially combined with turning people into Mavins, these are kind of universal. I, I'm, I'm calling these like the, the ring line five or something. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think there's three that are that are universal, like for all crypto, right? Which okay, is number three also yeah. universal? Uh, it, it's not universal because it's an advantage that the crypto gaming companies have. So yeah, I don't know that it's universal. I mean, I don't know that Bitcoin isn't over here like 
are they being hyper responsive to the community? I I, I kind of doubt it because uh, there is no Bitcoin, right? There's so so I don't know that number three is a, is is true across all of Web three. Okay, but uh, a number of them are actually just true of like new ways of doing business, and they're just being spearheaded by gaming. Yeah, right. The spearheading has has more powerful like all these things multiply together, right? You take you take these five things, uh, you know, they all multiply together. Gaming has these five powerful things multiplying together. That's why this is like since July of last year, one game has changed the whole gaming industry. And you could go and talk to any any game company and say, hey, by the way, what are you doing for crypto? And what you're going to get is either pain, joy, or fear. Because every single person is being dragged into conversations about crypto because they all have realized, oh, wait a second, the, the why has been proven. The, what, the first why of like, holy shit, this changes all the money is enough. And now everyone's going to change. Uh, but a bunch of these same drivers are true in all of you know crypto, whether we talk about Disney Plus or you know, ticketing or uh, a lot of, I think, true also crypto uh, currency. Yeah. So that's what I love about this conversation is that I think what we figured out, or, I mean, I think you already knew and I already knew a little bit, but it became crystal clear in that conversation that it's not about the tech. It's not about an NFT. It's not about a cryptocurrency. This is fundamentally changing how businesses operate, how they generate money, how they get people excited super importantly how content is created for them it's really hard to have a content creation team you can only make so much but if you can get people excited and have them create their own stuff which they have financial incentives to actually creating though that set of that set of interlocking incentives work together to create something amazing and it works for gaming but it also works other places you had a, a dirt example do the dirt example yeah so so after i got into the space which you know uh Early on, you were very helpful with teaching me like technology and you know, protocols and, and all that stuff. Uh, and then I went and attended conferences and I talked to lots of people. And for me, I had a revelation when I was talking to a guy who had a whiskey company. And I'm like, why? The same thing is like, why? Like, mm-hmm. what, what is the possible advantage of you sticking an NFT barcode on a cask of whiskey? Why does that matter? Like, like I'm so skeptical of this. And after talking to the guy for an hour, I walked away going, holy shit, that actually matters. This mm-hmm. guy is actually able to do a bunch of things that that actually really do matter because he figured the model out. And so I started to challenge myself of saying the why in regards to anything. And like the why, is there a way that, you know, uh, that we could leverage blockchain and, and these crypto concepts on different things? And so I'm at, uh, I'm at Christmas dinner with my uh, brother-in-law who always says, oh yeah, you do things with computers, those aren't real. I build houses, that's real. Like that's kind of a, a shtick that he has, he's, he's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I say to him, I'm like, hey, listen, give me any problem that you have uh, and, and there might be, you know, I, and I'm going to try to find a way to solve that problem in the future using, using blockchain. And he goes, my problem is dirt. I go, okay, this is perfect. This is the farthest away from, <laughs> from technology. You can possibly yeah. be. Give me your problem of dirt. And he's like, I have dirt that I need to get rid of. It's going to cost me $30,000 to go and dump it into, you know, landfill or an appropriate EPA approved place. If I can get a golf course to take it, I'm calling golf courses every day, trying to get some golf course to take it because occasionally they'll take dirt. But I am always stuck with this problem of having to get rid of dirt. And then you know what? In a couple of months, I'm actually going to need to buy dirt from somebody. It's super annoying mm-hmm. uh, that I both need to sell dirt and I need to buy dirt. And there are a lot of people with the same problem. But like, that's a real world problem, like dirt under your fingernails. How are you going to solve that with your you know, digital ones and zeros? And I go, okay, let's, let's try this out. So how many contractors are there who deal with dirt, who want to either buy or sell dirt in the, in the Bay Area right now? And he's like, there's 10,000. I'm like, okay. Would you spend $5,000 to have a pass that allows you to dispose of or pick up dirt? 
He said, for sure, I'm going to spend 30 right now to dispose of a bunch of dirt. Why wouldn't I spend $5,000? I said, okay, great. Let's convert those 10,000 people uh, into, uh, I mean, this is, again, this is assuming we can do some, you have connections and that there's some way for us to get this started, but let's, let's assume that's the case. We go out and we tell all these guys, hey, by the way, you buy a $5,000 pass to drop off and pick up dirt. Uh, it makes sense for all of them. They're all going to buy into this pass, right? Now you have $5 million to create a center and staff that center that will pick up, store, and then distribute dirt. Mm. You've got plenty of money to actually process this. Like that is way more money than you're going to need to actually process all of this dirt and allow people to come and, and take it. And uh, now all of you have this, right? You're the owners. You're also going to be an advocate. So if we only get 5,000 people to start with, every one of your people who you know, is gonna, you're going to be like, I'm going to drop it off the dirt at my dirt center. And they go, wait, your dirt center? Yeah, yeah, I own part of a dirt center that I can drop it off and pick up whatever I want. They go, I want that, right? So it will spread, right? It has the capacity to spread from person to person yeah. to go sell out, right? Now you've sold out, and again, you, you limit the supply of this. Uh, so there is 10,000 passes. A new contractor moves into the Bay Area. And he goes, wait a second. You mean that I can get rid of and pick up dirt whenever I want? This is fantastic. How do I get in on that? You can't. All the passes were sold. Okay, I really want in on that. I've got three major projects coming up. Uh, who has a pass I can buy? Someone else over here, I'm retiring next year and I don't think I'm doing any more seller digouts. So you know what? I will sell you my pass for 40 grand. I'm going to be nice to you because you're a nice guy. Mm -hmm. Guy buys a pass for 40 grand. So somebody over here bought a pass for 5,000 grand to pick up and drop off dirt, right? A couple days later, someone new showed up, needs a pass. They sold their pass. They pocketed the 35 grand, right? So they benefited by the marketing adoption of this dirt center. The dirt center gets a 5% cut to maintain their staff and their infrastructure. That $40,000 transaction pays money back to the dirt center to keep it running, right? Mm -hmm. Who owns the dirt center? All the people who bought these NFTs, right? He transferred his ownership of his piece of the dirt center to this new guy, paying money into the dirt center to keep it running, pocketing a bunch of money himself. All of those initial people who created this dirt center, now they, they have actually made a bunch of money off of this dirt center because all of the thing that they possess, they can literally say, you know what? I'm, I'm sending a kid to college. I don't care about dirt anymore. And they can sell their thing and it's worth more money because the value has been proven out. So this allows for upfront fundraising to create the dirt center. It allows for distributed ownership of the dirt center. All those people are involved. It allows for those people to become advocates of the dirt center. Yep. Allows them to share in the benefits and the rewards, right? In a way, this is like UGC for business, right? A guy created his own custom use case that, you know, is, is some investment company going to come and say, or some startup company, I want to solve dirt. They're never going to do that, right? But, but we took the, the financial possibilities and we made them granular enough and flexible enough that they could apply to contractors. And, it, and this, the infrastructure is easy enough to do that. I don't have to go through uh, as many different legal proceedings to even transfer ownership. Again, all of this is made a lot easier when you're doing it on the blockchain. Uh, and so that ease of simplicity, if we hearken back to uh, one of the really early examples of World of Warcraft versus Axie Infinity. World of Warcraft, you can make more money in, but it's illegal and it's hard. Mm -hmm. Axie Infinity is as legal and it's easy. The change to making it easier does actually alter the adoption. So the fact that the blockchain ownership is shared much more easily and much more transferred does help enable this, right? Yeah. It does help make it possible. Uh, and, and that's a solution for dirt, which is, you know, like, is that going to happen tomorrow? Probably not. Is that going to happen, uh, three years from now? There's a good chance. Yeah. Uh, and there's a million problems that are just like dirt problems, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that the podcast you referenced earlier uh, mentioned was uh, regulation and how uh, it's very hard for the government to regulate things and keep on top of all of the various entities that are out there. It's a lot easier for users to self-regulate. And Uber and Yelp and Rotten Tomatoes are an early example of this. That isn't the full, fully evolved form, but they allow for peer-to-peer uh, -peer reviewing. If you're a bad Uber driver, you get put out of business, right? Because people give you bad reviews. If you, they, get, if they get in your Uber, it smells and you're mean. You get put out of business. They have decentralized that relationship. Two different sides are both validating one another, yeah. right? That kind of model is the model that we need to regulate all the things in the future. And that kind of model is made much easier through blockchain, right? Uber is still an example of that type of regulation, but still owned by Uber. Uh, but that model can be further improved by being on blockchain, and then it can be applied to nearly everything. Mm. And so we'll, we'll have way less transactions that are, that are not peer-to-peer -peer regulated. We're going to get way more peer-to-peer -peer regulation. That's, again, the reason why Gala Games does something to disservice their community. Well, they're being regulated by their community. Their community has a voice. Their community has a vote. And a lot of games and companies that are in this space are allowing for that type of regulation. So the sandbox goes and has people vote on things. Before they're going to do a thing that changes the way their currency is deployed and structured, they go and they hold a vote. And people who hold and own it get to vote. And so they're decentralizing that, that regulation implicitly inside of their model. Interesting. So that's a very Web3 web sort of thing with uh, ownership and voting yep. inside of an ecosystem. Awesome. Well, this is uh, this is fantastic. I, I think hopefully we've stitched together how this is a pretty big idea. Um, I like I like your five tenets. I think they're really useful, and I I do agree with you. I think we could talk about this in the in the context of gaming, but it really is much bigger than that. It's just gaming is leading it. Yeah, yeah, and and gaming is is a uh, will because gaming is bigger than all other forms of entertainment. It's going to lead the way, and then everyone else will just follow suit. Uh, because yeah, everyone needs it. Most people need a community. Most people need to make money, and most people need marketing. Right? Yep. These these are things that are just better done in this model. So, yep. Like we were saying, these are incentive models, not really technologies. They're kind of the same, but yeah, the the, te the technology has only been a small step forward. Like that's the thing is when people were first talking to me about, hey, let's have decentralized trust for your currency. I'm like, yeah, okay. Technologically, that doesn't matter at all. But actually, psychologically, it matters when you create that persistence. And so this, this is not a, like, it's not technically that different to stick a NFT barcode on a whiskey cake. And that was my problem. I'm like, listen, this is not technically that different. You're just changing the way ownership exists. Well, uh, when, you, when you do a bunch of these small, subtle changes, and you involve people in their own ownership, and you, you make things easier, and you make things easier to vote, and you make them persistent, and you start to do all these little tweaks, suddenly it actually has powerful psychological Well, they're, they're feeding off each other. They're adding to each other. Yep. Right. And and here's what I think a lot of people don't realize is like NFTs or whatever, there's lots of rug pulls. Like crypto could fail, Bitcoin could fail, Ethereum could fail, even blockchain could fail. But these ideas that you've talked about, which are enabled by those technologies, they will resurface. Yeah. Even right. these, even these if, ideas are not going. Yeah, even yep. if this stuff actually, you know, crashed, it would rise from the ashes in a different form. Maybe it would be a different blockchain. Or maybe it would not even be a blockchain, but it would have the same features. Yeah, right, exactly. Or, I mean, there also might be an evolution beyond this, you know. With yeah. the speed at which technology and ideas are evolving, it is possible that this thing doesn't get to its full maturity before it gets replaced by something even superior, inspired by it. Yeah. <laughs> that's possible. Uh, I, I actually think that's almost the most likely thing to happen, is this, the speed of innovation now is so quick that if someone can pull along and innovate a couple of things that, again, are going to help multiply these advantages. 
Yeah, but I think certain certain components are so fundamental that you can't go too much further. I mean, ultimately you have you have companies, you have people, you have marketing, you have the raising of money, and you have profit and you have ownership. You certain things are are kind of static. The question is like how good is the technology at magnifying those things? You know, I have a, one of my colleagues recently quoted a thing to me. He's like, hey, listen, you know that if you give someone a piece of candy before you try to sell them something, uh, they are, you know, four times more likely to buy from you. Yep. Uh, that's, that's the same idea. Once you just change a little bit of, of the psychology of involvement in some way, uh, it just changes things fundamentally. So those things won't be different. Th- those are human drivers that, you know, we're not going to change our nature overnight. Uh, and it's all about, you know, finding the right ways to leverage that that can, you know, help grow the most correct kinds of businesses. I actually think that these businesses are, are better modeled for the future. We're not going to be, you know, people who dislike Facebook being the man. Well, yeah, it's actually going to be really hard in this model for there to be a Facebook in the future. Yeah. Uh, the, the Sandbox and Gala Games are not going to be that, right? They're very different. They're giving out most of the value to the users. It's mostly UGC. They're super community directed. It's decentralized, so you can pick up and walk away. So when, when, this, when this next metaverse and this next level of all these products is built, it's, it's not around these sort of giant corporations that have all the power. Uh, so, I mean, is, is that a way to summarize? I mean, this is a set of incentives that works more for the user than for the big corp. Yeah, that, that's a really good way to, to describe it. Uh, this actually, because this is all, these are all benefits for users. And a lot of people don't realize that, right? There was a, a magic uh, influencer who was, you know, playing magic recently who went on a big rant of like, hey, I want to own my magic cards for my digital game. Like, why can't I own my magic cards? But not NFTs. Because the stigma out of NFT yeah. made him not want to have to be an NFT. But what he wanted was he wanted the old school world of own your magic cards. Yes, once magic gets off their ass and allows you to own their own magic cards, they basically will be doing crypto gaming and it is a superior model. That is what made magic huge to begin with. Because that model was more present in physical, tangible things Digital is an easier way to reach more people, but once you combine those two models, it's going to be way more effective. So the second Magic and another company come out and show how much better it is, everyone's going to follow suit. People are going to own their own Magic cards, and the guy over here is saying, why, why, why are you trying to steal my money by selling an NFT? No, no. We're trying to give back to you, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to make it so you can own this thing. Like, I want to go live in a Reddit player one world. I want to go play in a game where I can earn money, right? Yeah. I, want to, I want to have the things that I'm doing relate back to my own financial prosperity, like that's better. Yeah. And the companies don't get screwed either because they can get all these residual fees when, when things are being transferred around, it's a small amount. So the users get most of it, but they still get rich, like in a peripheral way, accidentally they get rich. Yeah. I've had someone say to me like, well, it's all about how much money there is. And there's only so much money. Like, so that's not really true. When you, when you think about, we go back to the first change from the, uh, pay-to-play to free-to-play, right? Okay, free-to-play games make more money in theory. Some of them do. Other of them make less money. We have moved the money to be in a more appropriate place, right? Yeah. Uh, so the money, where it is being changed, and the, the, that, that is being realigned. Uh, so there's the same amount of money happening, but now the things that are good rise to the top. Free-to-play allows more for the things that are good to rise to the top. This does that even more so so that new good things can come out and in a blink of an eye, they'll be all over the place. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one way to think about this is um, it's a giant engine for content creation. Yeah. I mean, 
it, it's only one of your items, but I feel like a lot of things are feeding into that because the content creates the communities around it, which creates the money, which creates the hype, which creates the Mavens. And the more and more content you have, it's just the whole ecosystem gets super rich. People are excited. They want to play different universes. And to your point, that's not zero sum money. That is more and more money around more and more content. So right. the better we, you incentivize the content, the more money there is. Yeah. If we talk about like really far future, and in my case, I'm talking about super far future, let's say five years, right? Uh, I don't know that we're going to see the same kind of thing like a TikTok or a YouTube or Facebook come and take over full segments that, and these companies being sort of like owned and backed by major corporate powers. Instead, what's going to happen is the Hunger Games mod, right? Uh, the Hunger Games mod was a better version of uh, a type of battle inside of Minecraft. That kind of thing is more innovative. And so we're going to have more things that come from just random communities because the paths to, yeah. to being successful and big are way more. So now we're, we're allowing for that spark of innovation, right? The idea that innovation is kind of like uh, you need the right level of opportunities and the right combination of ideas and then something, something it can it's be. It's an exploded. evolution play. An evolution play. Now we're, we're multiplying the speed of evolution. And so, but it's not a small multiplier. We're not talking about we're doubling the speed of evolution. We're talking about we're going to 100x the speed of evolution. And that 100x speed of evolution means that some big person who comes by and says, hey, by the way, I want to make a, a TikTok. I want to recreate YouTube. I want to I want to compete with Facebook for, you know, social media platform. Like that large lumbering play isn't going to be the play that wins. It's going to be uh, three guys who got together who were drunk while playing some music and they figured out a thing that was kind of funny that was more interesting. They deployed it. They suddenly got a bunch of money on it. It suddenly works way better. Now everyone loves this thing. Now this thing is a new super hot thing. And it yeah. came from nowhere. All right. Well, this is uh, this has been fantastic. Let's continue doing these uh, conversations. Maybe the other ones can be shorter, but uh, really enjoyed having you and uh, talk to you again soon. Hey, my pleasure.